0: Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 14 this morning. As you no doubt know by now, um, on Friday morning, George's father passed away. He's spending his first Lord's Day with Jesus today, and I get the privilege of Filling in for him, um, George will pick up that passage listed in your bulletin with Zephaniah next week when he returns to the pulpit. Uh, this morning when I was leaving the house, I went up to my five-year-old and I said, Hey, buddy, guess who gets to, guess who's preaching this morning? He said, I get to preach? <laughs> uh, probably would have been more fun for you, but you got me today in First Peter chapter 5. I want to give you a little bit of background for the book of 1 Peter to orient you as we dig into this passage. Peter was writing to a group of Christians who had been dispersed over the region of modern-day Turkey. And they were being increasingly persecuted for uh, their faith. Much of the tenets of the Christian faith came at odds with the Roman Empire. And so they found themselves being marginalized and scoffed at, mocked. Christian was a uh, derogatory term in those days. And uh, though we have um, a great amount of religious freedom relative to the rest of the world here in the West, uh, increasingly it is becoming the case that we are seeing our own biblical beliefs become scoffed at and mocked and criticized by our culture as antiquated, narrow, bigoted behind the times, any number of different things. And so we have that, at least, in common with the original readers of this letter. And so it should be of great interest to us what Peter has to say, especially here at the end of his letter, to these Christians about how they ought to live, how they ought to conduct themselves in order to continue to faithfully follow Jesus. A question, really, that we ought to be asking ourselves from this text this morning is how can I stand firm in my faith and faithfully follow Jesus in a world that will persecute me for it? Let's go to the text and see 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and open the eyes of our hearts this morning to this particular passage written by your chosen instrument of grace, Peter. Give us right understanding and application, and most of all, show us Jesus. And so, capture our hearts with His grace that we we might be able willing to follow him no matter what. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you, as we begin this morning, to put on your Bible scholar hats for just a moment with me. I'm going to show you a few things about this text that will help us zero in on the main point that Peter is trying to co- communicate to us with regard to standing firm in our faith in a world that persecutes us. The first thing you should know is that with the exception of three paragraphs in this letter, every single paragraph begins with a command. And then Peter follows those commands with at least one aspect of the gospel that motivates it. And that's not unlike the way that we preach here at Second most every week. We do it in reverse order. We, we mostly give you the, the gospel motivation and we follow it with appropriate application. But that's how we go about teaching. And this text here is no exception. Look with me first at verse 6. <clears throat> Humble yourselves, Peter says, so he may exalt you. Command, motive. Verse 7. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because the devil prowls around looking to harm you. Verse 9, resist the devil, because you have a brotherhood of Christians all over the world who are experiencing the same. So this rapid succession of command and motive. Bear with me for a moment, but I believe that we need to address what I see as a kind of elephant in the room here, what we're getting from Peter. Here's Peter, the one who argued with the other disciples, who's the greatest, saying, humble yourselves. Here is Peter, who brashly walks out on the water with the Lord Jesus and immediately starts to sink because he got anxious, saying, cast your anxiety on the Lord because he cares for you. Here is Peter, who fell asleep, In the garden rather than watching and praying with Jesus saying, be watchful, be alert. Here is Peter who called down curses on himself to deny that he knew Jesus to a little servant girl saying, resist the temptation, stand firm in your faith. Now, how can Peter give us these types of commands and exhortations For the Christian life, how can Peter look at us with a serious face and say, "Stand firm in your faith, resist the devil"? Should look with me one more place in our text, verse twelve. My Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, command, motive. He's acknowledging the pattern he's been using that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is not calling us to follow his own personal example. He's he's calling us to stand in grace just as he stands in grace. Because verse 10 in this passage is not some rhetorical flourish to rally the troops that Peter is giving us. Verse 10, where he says, after you've suffered a little while, the Lord Himself will restore you, strengthen you, establish you, and confirm you. That was personal experience for Peter. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, he meets Peter on the shore. And he restores him. He forgives him. He makes him an apostle of his church and an author of God's very word. Jesus may have said to Peter, Peter, when, when you were falling asleep, I was in prayer Praying that Satan would not sift you like wheat. He might have said to Peter, when, when you were denying me, I was at the Father's right hand interceding for you. You see, every place that Peter failed and every place that you and I fail, Jesus has more than made up for in his faithfulness. And so while there are many commands for us to follow in this book and in this very passage, the one that encapsulates them all and and holds it all together is to stand in grace. So how are we to stand firm and faithfully follow Jesus in a world that will persecute us for our faith? We must stand firm by standing in grace. Peter gives us a few ways to do that in this passage that I want to share with you this morning. The first is to humble ourselves. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. I want to acknowledge right off the bat that this command to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to someone else's plan is a very, very difficult one for us to follow. You might say that it's the original sin. Adam and Eve had this command from God. And they chose to eat this fruit so that they could have their own knowledge and go their own way. And ever since then, we as fallen humans have been struggling with this command to humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God. It's made even more difficult when the very thing that you are receiving persecution and suffering for is for following Jesus. We might reason with God and say, God, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to follow you as you told me to. And look what it's gotten me. People are are laughing at and mocking my faith, calling it bad for society. How can this be good? And Christians have been making that complaint all throughout history. Think of the Israelites in Egypt. For 400 years, They suffered under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh as slaves. And they cried out, how long, O Lord, when will you come and redeem your chosen people whom you've made all these promises to? When will it end? Think of the original readers of this text. They're they're a part of this new and burgeoning movement of Christianity in the church. And they've joined it. They've set aside everything else to go and follow Jesus And now they're being persecuted for it, marginalized in society. What is going on, Lord? What gives? What about us? I'm sure that many of you in your weekly lives, when you go to to work or to school or your neighborhood, I'm sure there's many days where you may feel like the only one who believes what you believe. You feel like the only one who's trying to follow Christ. Everyone else is doing what they want to do. So what is it, Lord? What are we to do? I want you to notice a note of grace in this passage that would have jumped off the text much more readily to these readers than it does to us. Peter uses this frame uh, phrase, the mighty hand of God. Now, that phrase was originally used to describe God's redeeming work to bring the people out of Egypt. I brought you out with a mighty hand to make you mine. And then it becomes this kind of shorthand throughout all the Old Testament of a way of saying that this is the way that God has redeemed. God's mighty hand is at work. And Peter goes on to tell us, after you've suffered a little while, God himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. It's much more easy for us to say, My kingdom come now, then your kingdom come in your timing. We want our faith to be vindicated now. Peter reminds us in the next letter, God is not slow in keeping his promises as we count slowness. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that these present sufferings that we endure for following Christ are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us when Jesus comes and makes all things right. You see, the unique advantage that we have as Christians, different from anybody else in the world, is that we know the end. God has given us a glimpse of what is to come. And it may not come in our timing that we would like, but it is coming. It's a living hope, Peter has said earlier in this letter, a living hope. And so when we look at our, our city and we, we notice all the, the brokenness And all of the things that seem too great for us to do anything about. We can cast our mind's eye forward to the day when the sun will be no more because God himself will be our light and justice and mercy and peace will dwell in perfect unity. When we see ourselves at odds with each other in constant conflict and polarized by different ideologies We can look forward to the day when every tribe and tongue and nation will be worshiping in front of the throne, saying worthy is our God to receive honor and glory and blessing. And we will all agree that he is worth it and it was true and will be vindicated. That's the hope we have as Christians. We don't suffer without a certain future hope to hold on to. This is the grace of that Peter is calling us to stand in, stand firm in that grace. Another way that Peter calls us to stand in grace and so faithfully follow Jesus is to cast our anxiety on the Lord. This comes directly on the heels of the previous verse. And so Peter uses the grammar here to show us that while these oppressive nations like Rome were using their might To oppress and persecute, God uses His mighty hand to provide for His people. He says, Cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. Notice the the imagery that we get from that word to cast. When you've been carrying a, a heavy bag for a long hike or a long trip, and you get to the end of it and you can finally set it down and you just cast it on the bed of the hotel. And you just feel the weight of it come off, and you feel so relieved. This is what God is calling us to do with our anxieties with Him. Cast it, cast the full weight of your anxiety on me. A few weeks ago, I was uh, hiking uh, a mountain with my family. This was a, a normal person mountain, not a Dan Burns mountain, very small mountain. And so we're ascending to the top. And as we go along, when we would hit steeper parts in the trail, my two year old would turn and say, daddy's shoulders, Daddy, shoulders. So I'd hoist him up on my shoulders and he would just collapse on my neck and it still hurts. And so I'd carry him up the steep part of the trail. And then we'd hit a switch back and it would level out. He'd say, walk, walk set him down, he would walk, come again, daddy's shoulders, daddy's shoulders. We finally made it to the top. And thank God there was an ice cream truck there waiting for us. (laughs) It's a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? When we reach those places where we have challenges and anxieties that weigh us down and we feel like we can't go any further. God is not saying muscle up, do it yourself us up, casts the full weight of us on his back and carries us just as Jesus carried Peter with his faithfulness and his righteousness. And so the question for us, if that's the case, is why don't we cast our anxieties on the Lord? Uh, The obvious answer from the text is that we don't believe that he cares for us. Uh, But think with me for a moment, what are some other reasons that we might not cast our anxiety on the Lord. One, very simply, could be sin. We have the guilt and the shame of a a recent sin committed. And we kind of work out in our minds like we need to wait a little while before we go and approach God and give him something to take care of. He's probably not too happy with you for the moment. Let's wait and then we'll go. But God tells us that repentance is always available to you in Christ Jesus. If you're letting your sin keep you from casting your anxiety on the Lord, go to him in repentance, confess it, receive forgiveness. And then there's no probationary period whereby you can then submit another request. You can do it right away. Cast your anxiety on him right away. Jesus' blood is is effective right away for your sins to restore you to fellowship with God. Another reason that we might not cast our anxiety is just the pride of self-sufficiency. We don't like to have to ask for help, do we? We like to be able to, to do it ourselves. And I think, you know, a related one is that we view these things sometimes as a test. And if I can be faithful through this challenge, continue to follow faithfully, do what God commands me to do, then he will be pleased with me. I'll kind of prove my worth Before God, But that's really just works righteousness. It's reverting back to works righteousness. Now God is calling us to do the very thing we did when we became a Christian in the first place. Which is to admit that we can't do it on our own. And receive his grace. Now 1 Peter is clear earlier in this letter. That God does test us. He does put us through trials and suffering to test us. But that testing is never an opportunity for us to prove our faith to God. It's an opportunity for God to prove our faith to us. Like that fire, he says in chapter 1, that's been put through the furnace and the impurities are burned away and it comes out gleaming on the other side. God has a way of taking truths in his word, his promises, and meeting them with our experiences and so making that truth Even more real to us, helping us to believe that we believe it. You know, lines like, um, though the fig tree should not blossom, no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. That sounds great on paper. But it's even sweeter, even deeper when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have what we need and we don't know where it's going to come from, then we're forced to place our faith in that reality, to cast ourselves on the Lord, cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Think about the times that a friend or a loved one has shares with you something that they've been carrying and stressing about for a long time. What's the first thing that you think? I wish you would have told me sooner. I wish you would have told me sooner so I could have carried this with you. Why didn't you share this suffering with me so I could have walked alongside you in it? That's exactly the posture that the Lord has with us. Cast your anxiety on me because I care for you. Cast it on me. Finally, the the final way that Peter calls us to stand firm in grace is to stand firm with others. Now, God is gracious here to tell us what we're up against. He says that there is a devil and he is out to destroy God's redemptive plan. But he's also gracious to remind us that we're not alone in it. Notice the reasoning he gives us. He says, stand firm in your faith, resist him, because your brotherhood throughout the world is suffering the same thing. Isn't there a sense in which when we suffer together, it creates a sense of camaraderie and emboldens us to persevere through what we're facing? That's the image that Peter is giving us here. And so if that's the case, then I think that the primary way that the devil is trying to Destroy God's redemptive plan is to pull us apart. The devil wants us to believe that our conflict is primarily with each other rather than with him. He wants us to believe that our conflict is primarily with each other rather than with him. It was Charles Baudelaire, the poet, who said that the greatest trick the, the, the devil ever pulled was in convincing us that he doesn't exist. We think that each other is the problem. And so if, if the devil can get us to hear one phrase or word or see one action that another person does and immediately categorize them according to some caricature we've heard reverberated through, throughout news and social media, he will have succeeded in pulling us apart, polarizing us, and getting us to focus on our differences rather than the common faith that we have as believers. If he can get us to focus on various problems throughout our city and and zero in on, on that one thing as the issue that if solved would unlock the rest, he will succeed in keeping us from locking arms with each other and advancing the gospel. Now, I'm certainly not saying that there are not issues in our city that we should proactively address. We have... Poverty issues, we have education issues, racial conflict, government, law enforcement, all kinds of problems in our city. But none of those, in and of itself, is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is always sin and the devil working against God's plan. And so, if the root of the, the problem is a spiritual one, then the solution is a God solution. And so, rather than fight with each other and disagree about what we should even do in the first place we should first pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and lock arms with each other to get to work in the various places that God has called us to put things right again in his power where are you at work God to restore these things to this image you've given me and how can I join you in that work I, a few months ago, read about a phenomenon uh, that I'd never heard of that um, apparently often happens to astronauts when they go into outer space. It's called the overview effect. And the astronauts will ascend into outer space and they will reach the point when you can look back and you can look at the entire earth all at once. And we've seen those pictures, right? I look back at the world, they say two things generally happen to astronauts when they, when they see that. One, they are overcome with grief. Some of them weep. And when they've interviewed some of these astronauts, they've explained the reason why is that for the first time, I could see it all just in one place, all the brokenness, all that is wrong with the world, and I was just overcome by the magnitude of it. What can we do about this? Made them feel very, very small. The second thing that tends to happen to them is that when they return to earth, they have this renewed conviction for whatever purpose or cause or mission they are passionate about. And they go about it with renewed vigor. I think that's what Peter is doing for us here. He's giving us an overview effect. He's saying the world is broken. You will experience suffering and persecution on account of following Jesus. These things are true. That is a fact. But I also want to tell you that this is the true grace of God. God is at work And at the same time that you see all the brokenness going on, you may also see my grace at work to redeem it all. Peter writes to him, be the dominion forever and ever. So however much the devil might war against his plan, God will be the Lord and King of that earth. And will one day after our short time of suffering himself restore and strengthen and confirm and establish us. Until that day, let's stand in grace and so stand firm and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you take your grace, drive it down deep into our hearts that we might with renewed conviction and renewed gratefulness for all that you've done for us, go about our unique callings this week for your glory.